0: And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb.
1: Hoo Mission accomplished. World's prayers answered. Those were two of the headlines around the world in July of 2018 after 12 boys and their soccer coach were rescued from a cave in Thailand. The story had gripped the entire world. And maybe you, like me, still remember the relief, I think we found out on Sunday morning, if I remember correctly, the relief when we heard everyone had been saved from that dire situation. We've heard less sort of meaningful good news this past week, right? As our own Washington Nationals have made the World Series, and you see celebration around our area. Good news brings great joy, doesn't it? Good news, as the Proverbs say, refresh the bones. Good news is like cold water to a thirsty soul. And today in our study in the Gospel of Luke Church, we come to the greatest news ever announced, the best news ever proclaimed. Come to a lowly group of shepherds in a field outside Bethlehem who hear a breaking news headline that the greatest rescue mission ever launched is now getting underway. So, friends, if you've been with us in the past few weeks, we've begun working our way through the gospel account written by Luke. Probably around the early 60s AD, Luke was a physician who carefully and faithfully compiled the history about Jesus for a man named Theophilus. And so far, we've seen Luke share two pregnancy announcements and then one birth. Two pregnancy announcements, but just one birth. But now in the text Peter just read for us, the second birth arrives, and this one knocks the other one clean out of the park. Just have nationals on my mind, sorry. Uh, This one is incredibly majestic and glorious. So with our time together this morning, dear church family, let's look at three things from this text. And these will be just three descriptive elements of this text. So in the first seven verses, we'll see Jesus is born. In 8 through 14, we'll see Jesus is announced. And then in verses 15 to 21, we'll see Jesus is seen. Born, announced, seen. And I pray our hearts would yearn to love and know this Savior, this this object of good news more, as a result of digging into this passage together. So church, first, Jesus is born. Look with me in verse 1, please. Luke writes, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So Luke, as a good historian, he's going to do this many times, is placing us in a period of history. Uh, This Roman Caesar is named Octavian. Uh, He would become later known as Augustus. That's what he's known as at this point. Augustus meaning majestic. Majestic. Uh, if you put your world history hats on, you might remember Augustus had defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra and brought a kind of a, a good peace to his kingdom. And here in verse 1, we see this powerful world leader decree a registration to take place. A registration for the purposes of taxing, Taxation. In verse 3, everyone in Palestine returns to their own homes, their own towns of origin, to register for these taxes, and one of these taxable subjects is a guy named Joseph, verse 4. We've met Joseph before. Uh, He departs Galilee, leaves the small town of Nazareth, where we first met Mary, back in verse 26, and both he and his betrothed, pregnant with Jesus, journey over 70 miles to Bethlehem, a city kind of southwest of Jerusalem. Bethlehem was the city King David centuries earlier had called his first home. And now the descendant of David, King Jesus, will be born there as well. This had been prophesied in the Old Testament, and now God, this is, this is wonderful to see, God working through the decree of a Roman Empire emperor who thought he was God, is making sure everything works together for his purpose. There in verse 6, Joseph and Mary are in Bethlehem. It doesn't mean they had the baby right when they got there. They could have been there for days. But while they were there, for some length of time probably, Mary comes to the time to bear Jesus. In verse 7, the promise of Gabriel is fulfilled. And Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. And laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. A lot of tradition kind of circulates around this text. The word inn there doesn't mean motel, it most likely means a guest room that was in a house. So houses would have guest rooms that you could stay in. And so the meaning is that Mary and Joseph, this is speculative, but it seems like they probably went to a house, the guest room was already full. And so they had to go to a stable instead. The stable might have been even partly under the cover of the house. Uh, It was a place where the animals could dwell and feed. And here King Jesus is born. He's laid in a manger, a feeding trough for livestock. And church, I, I didn't see this very clearly before in this text. But what is striking here is a contrast Luke is drawing between two kings. Caesar Augustus is one of the greatest powers the world will ever see. One biblical scholar uh, writes about this inscription about Caesar where he was seen as a God whose, quote, birthday signaled the beginning of good news for the world. This Caesar was to be worshipped, and honored he would bring peace for the world and in some ways he did under his reign but i think luke is is drawing out a contrast that's not explicit but it's there in the text a true king has come a capital k king this messiah promised by god to deliver his people and this king inexplicably is found not in a Caesar-worthy castle, but in an animal's feeding trough. This king comes not in a palace full of rooms, but in a manger because there is no room. And yet this king has come to bring true, abiding, eternal peace, something Caesar could never, ever, ever offer. Church, this is a good opportunity for us to be reminded that our king is greater than any ruler or leader this world will ever produce. Our hope is in a king whose kingdom is not of this world, but is eternal and never-ending and never-fading. This is something that is especially important for us to, to remember as American citizens especially in a land where Christianity and religious freedom have long been valued and to good end. Praise God for that. We still must remember that our king is not an American king or a Western king. Our king is the king of the universe. His joy and peace will outlast any joy and peace accomplished by this country By a political party, by a presidential candidate. I heard one, or saw one minister say recently a a quote that struck me. He said, Before and after America, there was and will be the church. The nation is an experiment, the church is a certainty. Jesus, the king, came into the world as a lowly baby to set in motion a salvation plan that would change the world, to establish a church against which the gates of hell would not prevail. That's the king we worship. We worship the humble God-man with a manger for a bed. We worship the one who became low to raise us up. So Jesus is born. How does his birth get announced? Second point this morning, church. Jesus is announced. Look in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Shepherds here picture sort of the the lowly and humble of society. And and look at verse 9. Check out what happens. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. The the glory of the Lord. It's something we talk about a lot, but what is it? Well, here it's pictured as radiance, brightness, overwhelming light that breaks into the pitch-black darkness of a countryside night. You can imagine these shepherds, jolted, astonished, terrified by this incredible display of glorious radiance immersing them and surrounding them in light. It's an object lesson, isn't it? An object lesson of the one we saw last week at the end of chapter 1 who would come as what? The sunrise. The light of the world. Jesus is coming as the light of the world and his birth is being announced and pictured here as light literally piercing into darkness. What a picture. And this angel comes not to the greatest of the world but to the humble. The shepherds. And these shepherds don't surprise us. They act just like every other person has acted. When an angel has shown up, they are freaked out. I I love the old King James Version, right? They're sore afraid. but They're sore afraid. It's it's terrible, but their, their great fear is turned to great joy as the angel shares the birth announcement. Verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Good news to fearful men. Good news into a dark place. These shepherds are about to have their mega fear, that's kind of the, the word in the original language, mega, their mega fear changed to mega joy, great fear to great joy. So, what's the news that will bring this joy? What will bring this joy to the world? The hymn will sing in a few moments. For unto you, there's grace. It's not just somebody's born, but unto you, given to you this day is born in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the headline. The breaking news for the shepherds, for the world. The King has come. Augustus couldn't do it, but now true peace has come. And Jesus is here called three different things. Do you see that? He's called the Savior, the deliverer of God's people. He's called christ the greek word for the hebrew word messiah meaning this anointed one that god had promised for hundreds of years would come he's called the lord a word related to the the hebrew word yahweh remember that name when we studied through exodus the covenant keeping god this is the christ the savior the lord There in verse 12, the angel gives a sign of this news. That's another point of grace, I think. He doesn't just tell them the news, he shows them how to find it. He says, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And then as if one angel wasn't enough to totally knock these shepherds senseless, look at verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. If you think about the hundred or so verses we've studied in Luke up to this point, it's kind of been one angel with shouldering the load of the work, right? One angel appeared to Mary, one angel appeared to Zechariah, but now for the arrival of the king. Uh, multitude of angels shows up. The word host there, the heavenly host, has the idea of an army of angels. Army of angels marching into the darkness of the world, bringing light. I love how one scholar puts it when he calls this army of angels huge, regimented, and marshaled for the praise and purposes of God. And many point out how, when we think of army, we think of violence and war. But what's this army bringing? Peace. It was enough to take the shepherd's breath away. And in the chorus in verse 14, we see heaven mentioned as well as earth, kind of in direct contrast to each other. So at the same time, glory is given to God up in the heavens, And on earth, peace is given to men. Heaven, earth, meeting on a field outside Bethlehem. In Jesus, heaven and earth come together, as one author says. The word for glory there is related to our word doxology, which is a song we'll sing at the very end of our service. The offering of glory and honor to God, not to—I've said this before, and just it's impressed me over the last few months. But so I just want to say it again: this is an offering of glory to God that is in no way adding to the glory of God. He doesn't need our worship to be fully glorious. But this glory, this saying "glory to God in the highest" is a glory, or is a, is a word that acknowledges His glory, makes it known. And then on earth, there is peace, peace between God and man, not scattershot peace. So in, in songs and, and tradition, Christmas tradition, uh, we often say goodwill to men, not a very good meaning of those words. The meaning is more precise. It's, it's peace to those with whom God is pleased, those on whom God shows mercy. So as your pastor, I know some of you really struggle with the idea of your own worth. We, we can kind of um, kind of mock, is a strong word, but kind of think like the, the world's idea of self-esteem and self-worth is, is anti-gospel. Gospel is actually a thing that, un, that gives us understanding of our worth. And yet I know many of you struggle with it. You've been rejected many times in your life. You've been told you're worthless. And sometimes the subtle way people treat you in comparison to others around you makes it pretty clear that you're not as lovable. But this good news says God is pleased with those on whom he shows mercy. That he has sent peace for those who please him. How could that be? I mean, we're sinful. He's holy. That's the gospel. That's the setup for the gospel. How could we please him? Turn with me just one page over in your Bibles, probably to the end, beginning, uh, the middle of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 21. And we'll get to this in a few weeks, Lord willing. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And listen, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. That's God speaking. With you, I am well pleased. Sound familiar? Jesus is the ultimate one who pleases his father in heaven. He is the perfect obedient son that each of us have been called to be. Yet incredibly, Jesus comes, is called the most most pleasing to God and what? Is rejected by God for us. Jesus comes to be crucified for our sin and judged under the hand of God for us. So now we, joined to him, united to him by faith, can be called that very same thing by God. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Beloved church, this is how we know God loves and delights in us. That Jesus has been crucified and judged under the hand of his father so we can call his father our father. And be his beloved sons and daughters. So discouraged friend, rejected friend, you may not be accepted by the person you most want to be accepted by in this world right now. You may have been striving for that acceptance whether it's a parent or a spouse or a friend or a a boss. You might have been striving for that for years. And it may never come. But if you are joined to Christ, discouraged friend, you are accepted by the creator of the world. You please him. He delights in you. That's good news. Jesus, his birth is announced as light breaks into darkness. And then finally, our last thing to see this morning is that Jesus is seen. Verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So in verse 16, the shepherds run to Bethlehem and they they find the sign. They find Mary and Joseph and the king of the world in a manger. So they've heard about it. They've acted on that news and now they see it for themselves. Jesus is seen. And how do they respond? They instantly begin talking about it. They, They say things that probably like, it's come true. What the angel said. The angels had said this would be Christ the Lord in in a swaddling cloth, and there he is. See, guys? In verse 18, people hear about this. They marvel. Uh, We read throughout the Gospels about people who marvel at Jesus, who are flabbergasted by the work of God in Christ. That doesn't necessarily mean they have true faith. Many can be amazed at Christ and not believe and trust. So perhaps there's a warning there. Then in verse 19, we see another response. Mary takes all these events, stores them up in her heart, pondering, turning them over in her heart. We'll see her doing this again at the end of the chapter in verse 51. And then the the next response is in verse 20. The shepherds go back to their flocks, which I was kind of wondering what happened to those flocks during that time, but the Bible doesn't tell us. Go back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. As it had been told them, Jesus is seen. Some call these shepherds the first evangelists. They hear the good news, they see the Savior, and they spread the word. Church, this joy and this praise going out from the shepherds is the response of the gospel. Consider the good news of the gospel, church. Consider it with me again. Jesus coming in humble form to lay down his life for his people. One author writes, Before his incarnation, the Son of God was rich beyond anything Augustus could ever have imagined. But for our sake, he stooped to be born, not merely as a human. That alone would have been an incredible condescension. But as a powerless infant. The one whose birth was heralded by a a multitude of angels chose not to call on a multitude of angels for assistance on the cross. Do you remember that? In the garden, when his disciples are trying to save him, and he says, don't you know I have a, a legion of angels I can call to my aid? They come to proclaim his birth, but he holds them at bay as he dies, as he suffers and dies alone. This is the glory of the humble Savior, Christ the Lord, coming not to take over Caesar's rule, which the Jews probably hoped would happen, something of that nature, but to establish a much deeper peace, an eternal peace, a peace with God. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here. And, and like us, we assume, I think rightly, that you desire peace, right? Right? We want peace. We want peace in our relationships. We want peace in our lives. But just so you know, we as Christians have found that in the gospel, we find peace with everything else in our lives if we start with peace with God. Peace vertically between us and our creator, we found, must come first before we can ever hope for semblance of peace horizontally with those around us. In our sin, we have a broken relationship with the one who made us, and this shows in broken relationships all over our lives. And this lack of peace, this rebellion against the way God has made us to live, means that we must be judged by the Holy Lord. A punishment is death and hell, eternal spiritual death, and separation from God's blessing. But listen to the good news. Jesus came to be rejected for you, if you will turn to him, to take your punishment on himself, to be judged by his father so you could be adopted by his father, forgiven, saved, Friend, if, if you will turn from your sin and place your trust in Jesus this morning, you will have true eternal peace with God. And slowly but surely, you will see that peace trickling out to your relationships with others. I'm not promising it will be perfect, but the peace of God is eternal. And it affects us now, and it will only grow and increase in peacefulness into eternity. And church, look at verse 10. There we see this good news brings what? Great joy. Joy is is something we talked about uh, at our vision meeting a few weeks ago. It's something that we continue to kind of pray for as a church, that we would grow in expressing joy together in our gatherings and in our community as a church. And here in this passage, we see that this joy is not something we create or concoct on our own, right? It's something produced in us by God's good news, by the gospel itself. What is this joy? Well, we know from other parts of Scripture, James 1, 2, for example, this joy is able to coexist with suffering, so it must be bigger than mere happiness and comfort, Uh, We know it's not dependent on our circumstances because it's dependent on God as the one who gives it. We know that it's a fruit of the spirit in our lives, Galatians chapter 5. And so we know that distinctly Christian joy, distinctly Christian joy is a state of peace with God through Christ that expresses itself in giving glory back to him. This is my working definition. Distinctly Christian joy is a state of peace with God through Christ that then expresses itself back in giving glory to Him. Joy is given to us, it's not something we create on our own. But, but that doesn't mean we can't grow in it. It doesn't mean we can't grow in it understanding and receiving and embracing that joy that comes to us in the gospel. Joy is a gift, but something that we must, that we're commanded in the Bible to cultivate. Remember our study over the summer in Philippians when, the, when Paul says, rejoice always. It's a command, something we must cultivate. So as we close, how can we grow in joy as a church? How can we grow to become more like those shepherds, glorifying and praising God? If you're a brother and sister in Christ, this is something you desire but it doesn't mean it's something you're good at. So three things that I need to take to heart that I wanted to share with you as we close our sermon this morning. Three ways we can grow together as a church in our joy. And these won't surprise you. You've heard this all before, but hopefully it reminds you. First, we can grow in our joy by rehearsing the good news. We can grow in our joy by rehearsing the good news. The great Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones famously wrote in his book, Spiritual Depression, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? He's speaking of not just listening to our thoughts, but preaching the gospel to our thoughts. So, Christian You're a person. That means throughout the day, even when you're sleeping, you're having a constant dialogue in your brain. Right? Sometimes I feel like Gollum. I don't know about you. I'm just going back and forth, speaking thoughts back and forth to my brain, figuring out what I want to believe. So in those long dialogues, do you ever stop listening and speak truth to your thoughts? With all the other information flooding in from social media and work memos and your kids' constant barrage of questions, do you ever stop and rehearse the gospel proclamation that was first the shepherds and is now yours? Maybe try something tomorrow. It's just a suggestion. Maybe before you kind of go into a day that you're going to be stressed about certain things, you're tired, it's a Monday morning, maybe, maybe look in the mirror And say to yourself, self, whoever you are, you have sinned. You have sinned beyond all hope of redeeming yourself. But God has chosen to have mercy on you. He has given you new life by sending his son to die so you don't have to. You now live in Jesus. And everything today that happens to you is under God's lovingly fatherly care. You are destined for eternal life with him. So go and live in that reality today. What do you think about trying something like that? We must not assume the gospel as a church. We've seen in the history of American churches that churches kind of just assume what the gospel is, lose the gospel. But I think that applies to Christians as well. Even when you hear the gospel preached and proclaimed throughout the week, or you hear other people meeting with you and talking with you about it, you can still just kind of assume it. Assume that's true for you. Assume that you know what it is. Make it explicit so that you don't forget it. Like scales for the piano student, we must train ourselves to rehearse the gospel. Second, we can grow in our joy by finding peace in Christ above all else. Great. I mean, we all ascribe to that, right? Sounds like a good motto for the day, but also sounds a little uber spiritual and vague. Like, that can look however I want it to look. I I think, church, it's actually super practical. Because, and I I was struck by this this past week, all day you and I are looking for and looking forward to peace, aren't we? we? We say things like, well, peace will come when I'm done with work. Peace will come when I can get that meeting done. Peace will come when my husband and I can reconcile the fight we had last night. Peace will come when I get a girlfriend. Peace will come when the kids are in bed. Peace will come when I can turn on Netflix. Peace will come when I can actually fall asleep. And none of those things are bad in and of themselves. There's a right sense of completion and rest that takes place after goals and tasks are accomplished. But there's a discipline in the midst of those things. Not just waiting for them to be over, but in the midst of them to find peace in God right then. Right? To be able to say, I may not get a good sleep tonight. My toddler might scream all night. I may not get into that relationship I really want. I may not be able to get off work today. My boss may still be angry with me. I may still feel like a failure today. And yet, right now, I will find peace in the midst of all this in God. I will not rage against him. I will rest in him. I think, Christian, you will find that as you abide in your Savior and make conscious, disciplined choices like that, your joy in Christ will increase. Because the joy won't come just when the next thing's over with. The joy will come right then. Find your peace in him practically right now. Claim peace from God, the peace he gives you in Christ, and rejoice in it. And thirdly and finally, church, we can grow in our joy by making Jesus known. We can grow in our joy by making Jesus known. This is explicitly what we see the shepherds doing, right? they hear from God, they see what he's done, all of us have seen have seen what he's done in our lives and in the gospel, and then they make it known. They're full of joy. I, I think, you know, we, we've been going through evangelism in community groups, and, you know, there's been mixed reviews about how helpful it is, and that's good because it's a man-made curriculum. But I, I think we, we try to remind ourselves well to have a good motivation to share the gospel. Like we share the gospel with, because of the joy that's overflowing your heart. And that's true. Share the gospel, not out of duty or compulsion. Share the gospel because it's just bubbling over, right? But I think as, then as a result of that, we kind of think, oh, I need to reach this sort of level in the thermometer of joy before I can kind of bubble over. I think we forget that actually joy is not just the source of evangelism, it's the result of evangelism. If you want more joy, church, share the gospel. Joy will come of it. Go out and see how your joy increases as you take risks to speak of Jesus. Church, let's pray together that we might grow in understanding the good news of great joy proclaimed by the angels that we still proclaim today, that a Savior has come, that a King has come, and will come again to rule the world with truth and grace. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we love you. You humbled yourself to come to us in a lowly manger. And we thank you. Lord, we pray that you would so fill our minds with your love and grace that we would glorify you like these shepherds. And so we ask, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, would would bring more joy into our hearts for we adore you, and we proclaim that you will come again, and then we will have fullness of joy. Lord, we can't wait for that day. Bring it soon, we ask in the name of Christ. Amen.